Our scripture lesson today, we're going to have a little fun with it. It comes from Judges 16. You might be reminded that Judges is the period of time before uh, the monarchy of uh, Saul and David and Solomon, uh, where people would just sort of be lifted up, these military, just wild leaders, a lot of them kind of like Rambo, if you know that metaphor. Um, And so we come to Samson and Delilah, and just know that as we read this, this is not something to emulate, this is something to be warned about. Okay, so let's share in this good word together. After this, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in that marriage in a nutshell, <laughs> they fell in love, dot, dot, dot. He was tired to death. You're like, come on, honey, wake up. So um, I, I just, I just want to submit to you <laughs> that in the last number of years, I've heard a lot about biblical marriage. Friends, you do not want a biblical marriage. I mean, name me one marriage in all 66 books that you really want to emulate or lift up. Would that be David and Bathsheba? Adam and Eve. Abraham passing Sarah off as a sister. I mean, you look at the, the marriages in the Bible, they are terrible because they're real. They do the same stupid stuff we do. And if we're wise, we will learn from their mistakes. So let's not kid ourselves. Now, it's also true that Priscilla and Aquila look pretty good in Acts 18. But really all we know is that they helped Paul start a church. And that's good. That's really good. But that's about all we know. I mean, their, their marriage life is really a mystery to us. We don't, we don't know really anything about that. So today, I want to share with you a biblical guide to weakening your marriage, your family and your relationships, your friendships. Um, and, and, and as we come to look at this in reverse, maybe we go, oh, yeah, that is a trap. Oh, yeah, that is something that would mess up my relationship uh, with my uh, coworker or my friend or my spouse or my child or whatever. There are some things that are just true in all of humanity over time that will really mess you up. And sometimes I have the, the great pleasure of, of people saying to me, um, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while somebody will say to me, you know, Mark, Last week, you were preaching just to me. Like, how do you do that? How do you know exactly? Are you reading my mail? Like, what are you, what are you doing? And here's the thing. In about 6,000 years of biblical history, it doesn't change much. We love to think of ourselves as unique. I mean, in, in the most lovely way, yes, each of us is, is our own beautiful little snowflake of God. Of course. I mean, I give us that. But humanity does not change. And that's what makes the Bible so beautiful and rich and wonderful and helpful if we can put ourselves in these stories and go, oh, yeah, that is a trap. That's a trap we need to stay out of. So I invite you to take your sermon notes out, and we're going to get going. We're in this series uh, called The Relationship Challenge. Will you say that with me? The Relationship Challenge. Notice it is a challenge. Relationships are hard. They, They are challenging. And, and so wherever you find yourself, I was so grateful uh, to have John and Brandon on staff. I am grateful. 
It's not past tense, guys. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, but, um, you know, two weeks ago was the first time, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but the, two weeks ago was the first time in our 21-year history that we actually had an intentional sermon about singleness. And I just want to apologize to all our single folks about that. It was way too long. And John did such a great job. I mean, he really, really moved me. Because it's so important that you know this. I want you to read this with me. Here at Acts 2, singleness should never be synonymous with what? Never. Never. And and not just it should not, it will not. It cannot happen. If you are a person and you are single, we love you. You are welcome here. This is your church home. And if you are engaged, we love you and this is your church home. If you are married, we love you. This is your church home. If you are divorced, we love you and this is your church home. I may need to say that two or three times given that there are other churches that that's not the case. But here... We want you to know, wherever you find yourself, if you're widowed, we love you. This is your church home. Wherever you find yourself, we're with you in this challenge. It is a challenging time to be in relationships with anyone. Wherever you are, we love you. You're welcome here. We're your church home. John, thank you for the reminder. It's important. It's important. And then Brandon, last week, um, while often maligned, humility is the key to living and loving well. We're reminded that Jesus, on the last night of his life, washed feet, served as a servant would serve, poured wine and and served bread and washed feet. Humility, if you want to have a great relationship, humility is where it starts. To really put the other person that you care about first, to love them. Now, I'm sure that over time in the uh, 20-something years that I've preached here, I've, I've used the analogy of put your gas mask on first. People love to do that. That is and isn't true. Yes, do you need a certain level of health for yourself to be healthy for other people? Yes, that is true. But that can also flip to selfishness in a heartbeat, can it? Oh, I'm just putting my gas mask on first, friends. Good luck, right? So humility is about how to live and love well. Now, I'm really going to give you two sermons today. I'm sorry. Um, One of them is for free. And so the first one um, I heard and learned in 1995 and it was so powerful to me, I want to share it with you uh, because I hope it blesses you and, and, and really helps you and maybe keeps you out uh, of a bad place. And so I, this is just from memory from 1995. There are a few sermons uh, that I've ever heard that I can repeat almost word for word 20-something years later, but this is one of them. Uh, my pastor at the time said he wanted to give us a report card. And on this report card, there were going to be A's and there were going to be F's, but in the kingdom, they're flipped. And so every time you have an A, that's something you don't want, that's bad. And every time you see an F, that's something that you do want, right? So you got, you got the idea? He's just flipping it. And so what was said in that sermon is if you were looking at your relationship, wherever you find yourself, um, on the left-hand side, they're going to be A's, and on the right-hand side, they're going to be F's. So if you're filling out your sermon notes, you can go ahead and put A's on the left and F's on the right. And the first thing that was true then is true today, maybe even more so, Uh, in places like Edmond, where people are growing and busy and educated and working hard, is absenteeism. You want to wreck your relationship? Don't show up. There's nothing that's going to wreck your uh, life quicker than this. If you want a relationship, you've got to spend time. And and I want to blow up the myth of quality time. You just need time. I mean, you you can put off your kid five days um, and say you're going to have quality time on the sixth, but you know as well as I do, oftentimes that sixth day never comes. Or it's not as quality as the kid would like. Right? So absenteeism will absolutely wreck your relationships. 
And, and the way to overcome that is to remember your faith in your family first or your faith family first. We know that families that worship together have a significantly lower divorce rate and a significantly higher happiness rate than families that don't have a, a tradition of worshiping together. Now, interestingly, um, that's, that's true across different religious groups too. And so if you go to synagogue as a Jewish person, that still is much better. If you're going to mosque, if you're doing a thing, if you have a family ritual once a week and you're in worship, however, whatever that means for you, you're going to do better than those who just do whatever, however, whatever that is. That's statistically true. We know that across time over survey after survey after survey. So absenteeism and, and having a faith family, that, that's your corrective. The second uh, and I'm, I'm going I'm to step on some folks here, and I don't mean to, but this is just over 20 years of pastoral ministry. I've seen it, and my mentors have seen it, and you just need to know this. That in Edmond, Oklahoma, alcoholism is wrecking people's lives. Some of you are in recovery. Some of you have done Celebrate Recovery. Uh, some of you are at AA. I've been with some of you in those groups, and, and they are life-giving because they're real, and they all depend on a higher power, which around here we know as Jesus, uh, the very perfect image of God. But alcohol can absolutely wreck your marriage at any point in your marriage. Uh, I have folks that have told me, look, Pastor Mark, you know, we're never intimate unless one of us is drunk. That's a problem. I mean, if you've got to have a couple of glasses of wine before you can share your real life with your partner, that's a problem. And we just, we just need to own this. When your kids go off to college and you're lonely and rather than talking about your sorrow or your grief uh, about that, you're just opening up another bottle, that's a problem. Alcoholism is a real problem, and you don't have to do anything but watch the news the last two weeks and know how deadly it can be. Amen? I mean, we just got to get square on this and sober about this. And, and so wherever you find yourself on that, just know that that's a trap. And, and the other thing about that is, again, faith and family are the corrective to this. You need a place to share your sorrows. You need a place to get real with people. You, you need um, extended family and faith family uh, so that when, you know, dad's had one too many and he's saying inappropriate things to mom or the kids, you need somebody else in your life to go, don't pay attention to him, he's drunk. You know, you need to go sleep that off. We, we've lost our extended family systems to correct bad behavior when people are off page. Amen? Isn't that true? And we've got families that are cratering because they don't have the resources to correct bad behavior. And when you've got big differentials in power and income, that's even worse. It's a lot harder on poor families than it is wealthy families because wealthy families can buy the extended family systems that they need. There's a great article in the Atlantic last week by David Brooks that explains all this out, the real struggle of the nuclear family. And it really is a failed experiment. Because, friends, we've known this biblically for a long time. You need a lot more than mom and dad and two kids. You need your aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and faith, family, and tribe and clan, the people who are there for you. Amen? Right? You need people who are there for you. So if you lose your job, you get sick, you've got a problem, somebody's off page, someone other than just one person helps ride that wave. And, and church can be that. We can be that. Faith family can be that. And finally, this will not be a surprise to you, adultery. And the first two obviously lead to the third. You're gone all the time. You're working all the time. You're drinking with people that aren't your family. Adultery's right around the corner. I mean, it... it this is not news to you, clearly. It's not news to me. I have people come to my office and their marriage is breaking up. What's happened? Well, she worked out of town a lot. She was at the bar. She met this guy. And I don't know what happened, but I don't really need to know what happened. All I know is I don't know what to do now. Because she travels all the time. 
She's drinking because she misses me. And there it is. Now, you would expect that I'm just going to say faith and family, but no, this time it's fences. Our culture has lost the ability to set a good, hard boundary about what we will do and what we won't do as a family. Every person in the family needs a curfew. They need a budget. They need fences around their time, around their relationships, around what they will and won't do. And there ought to be consequences when that fence gets broken, right? If mom or dad can't hit supper time at 6 o'clock, there ought to be a consequence for that, just like there is for a child. Mom and dad have their phone out at the, at the kitchen table. It ought to be just like it is for the kids. You don't get to have it both ways. You don't say, well, kids, put your phone up, but I've got to check this email. I mean, you see how hypocritical that is. I mean, it's monkey see, monkey do, friends. I mean, it really is. You can't say one thing and do another and expect your kids to get on page with that. So, that one's free. We're move on. But you see how powerful that is, how important that is. That's just the reality of the traps that are still there across time. So, in this relationship um, challenge series, I want to lift up three things that uh, the story of Samson, or four things that the story of Samson and Delilah bring to us uh, very quickly. The first is the challenge of limited information. Limited information. In Judges 16, we find this at the top. After this, Samson, he falls in love with a woman in the Valley of Sork whose name was Delilah. Now, here's the thing. Scholars don't know who Delilah was. Some scholars will say she was a Philistine. Others say she was Jewish. Others will say she was a Canaanite. They don't know. And guess what? Neither did Samson. All he knew was she was hot. And he didn't care what her name was or where she was from or who her grandma was. He was just all about Delilah. You know what the word Delilah means? Flirt. All we know about Delilah is she was flirtatious and she was good looking. And if you know the story of Samson at all, that's really all he cared about. In the previous chapter, he was with a prostitute. He's not a great guy. Not somebody you want to emulate. So the lords of the Philistines, which is the arch enemy of the Israelites, come to Delilah because she's a flirt. And guess what? They say to her, coax him and find out what makes his strength so great. Because he was killing them. Literally killing them. And, and he's, so they want to know how can we overpower him so that they can bind him and subdue him. And each person, we don't know how many people were there exactly, but each of them gave her 1,100 pieces of silver. And I don't know whether the market was up or down on silver, but that's a lot of money. 1,100 pieces of silver. So might you want to know if the lady you're dating has just been given a large sum of money to date you? Might you want to know that? Yes, you want to know that. So here's the thing. If you're not yet married, or if you are married, Ask a lot of questions before you commit to this person and after you commit. You need to know what's going on. You really need to know what's going on. I'll never forget the day that uh, someone in our church, um, I looked at them and I was like, man, they just don't look like themselves. And I said, are, are, you know, are you okay? And they're like, no. I said, what happened? And she said to me, uh, my husband, they've been married about two years, uh, just told me, uh, that he has an eight-year-old daughter. I was like, that never came up. Mm-mm. Looks like she was going to move in with us. Hmm. You might want to know if the person you're dating has a child. Don't you think? I have other colleagues, no kidding. They've said they were in a, a counseling session, and, and the husband said, um, you know, I had this problem with my first marriage. And his wife goes, you were married? 
And he actually had the audacity to say, yeah, I didn't think it'd go over well, so I was waiting until I went to pastor <laughs> so-and-so, um, you know, to help us work it out, to which uh, Pastor Paul Rasmussen at Highland Park, he goes, hey, that's above my pay grade. No, no, no. Don't, don't pull me into this. I mean, come on, people. They're going to find out if you were married, if you have children running around. You ask a lot of questions, right? Like, do you have a job? How long have you had your job? How much do you make at your job? Do they like you at your job? Are you on your way out of that job? Do you have debt? How much debt do you have? How much student debt do you have? And then ask this question if you are married or if you're about to get married. Why do you want to be married to me? Did you just get paid 1,100 pieces of silver? Now, Pastor Paul in his sermon said it like this. He said, if the answer isn't because I'm appointed by God to love you like Jesus loves me, then you might want to think twice. I think that's a pretty good answer. Do you understand yourself to be appointed by God to love your other person well? And that's a game changer if you understand that. If you really are called, appointed, part of your life's purpose to love someone else. The, the second, and you won't be surprised by this, uh, what do you all fight about? I mean, really, think about what you fight about. Isn't it money? Oh, I know you love when the visa bill comes in, right? It's just a joy. You're like, oh, look at how good stewards we are of all this money the Lord has given us. Let's talk about our visa bill and our house payment and our car payments and student debt and all that. Oh, it's so fun. See, here's the thing. The lords of the Philistines came to her and said, we want to know and we're going to give you the money. Don't you think, read the last part with me. 1,100 pieces of silver. Do you think that had any impact on the relationship? It can't not have an impact on the relationship. I was counseling a young couple, and they told me that their student debt was more than their house payment. That's a real deal. Their student loans were more than their house payment, and that was the primary struggle in their marriage. And it's particularly hard when it's not equal. When somebody has no debt and somebody else has a lot of debt. And I'm not dogging the person with debt because sometimes the person with no debt didn't have anything to do with that. It was grandma. So, I'm, I mean, but the thing is, you just got to own it before you get there. You don't want that to be a surprise, right? I mean, you, you got to talk about money. And so Delilah says to Samson, please tell me what makes your strength so great and how you could be bound so that no one could subdue you. So again, Pastor Paul says it like this. He says, you cannot build a healthy, intimate relationship if money is the foundation of all your exchanges. Now, you've got to talk about it, but it can't be the only thing you talk about. And if we're honest, we get in those seasons as married people where it seems like, particularly now going into tax season, it might be all you talk about. You, you've got check-in, you've got kids to go places, you've got things to do, and, and it seems like all you're talking about is, now, did you pay the light bill? Did, you know, where are we with this? I mean, where are we with that? What is, and, and it seems like you're always talking about Something about money. Well, that's a beating, friends. And it won't surprise you that 86% of couples start with significant debt. That's a high number. That's a high, high number. And it's really hurting marriages. Now, here's the thing. You can deal with debt. You can deal with money if you don't hide it. Because hiding a debt will kill a marriage. Absolutely. You go and you try to 
uh, refinance your home or buy a car and your credit score comes back because some there's some things you don't know about your spouse's spending. There's some credit cards that have been opened up that you don't know about. And I will tell you, uh, in my experience, this is the number one thing that end marriages. Uh, they start going to counseling. One of them's trying to work it out. They think both are trying to work it out. Um, the divorce isn't final. And one thinks they're working towards it, and the other one has taken out three credit cards and uh, stopped theirs. It happens every week. This will this this end it. And you might think, oh, you know, it's a surprise. She's going to love it. Friends, a surprise is nothing but putting lipstick on a power move. Because the reason you're surprising them is you don't want their input. Surprise. Surprises can kill a marriage. Any of y'all ever come home from work and there's a new car in your garage that you didn't know anything about? Surprise. You got three years of payments you didn't know were coming. Did you see how this works? This will mess you up. You cannot spend behind one another's back. Even if it's for Valentine's. Right? How many of you all have done something really nice for your spouse and you thought you were going to get a big old kiss and you got a big old whack on the head? Because they did not like what you spent on the present. Like, well, I thought you'd like it. I thought you'd tell me if you're going to spend over $500 on something or whatever it is. Right? Because nothing erodes intimacy quicker than erosion of trust. You cannot share your body, your bed, your life with someone you don't trust. If you can't trust them with your wallet, you ought not trust them with your body. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, we, we just need to get this right. And, and that, of course, leads, right? If we're not, if we're not really there, um, and we're not being honest with our money, then it leads to lying. And that's what happens with Samson and Delilah. Samson said to her, oh, no, no, if they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dried out, I'll become weak like anybody else. Is that true? No, that's not true. That's a lie. Then the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings, and they not dried out. She bound them with them. And, and the men were, you know, they had these houses where they had like bedchambers, but they had this inner chamber. They were right there, ready to take him and to kill him. And, and she says, oh, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And, of course, he snaps the bowstrings. And she's like, boo-hoo-hoo. You lied to me. He's like, boo-hoo-hoo, why'd you tie me up? Like, this is not a healthy relationship, friends. You see this. And these little bitty lies of, oh, you know, it's about the bowstrings, become habitual lies, don't they? Hey, honey, what you looking at on your iPad? Nothing. What, what, are, you, what are you doing on your computer? Nothing. Well, you've been doing nothing for two hours. Still doing nothing. Yep. Yeah. Ask your kids. What, what are you doing? Oh, not, nothing. And, and the thing that was a tiny little lie a year ago, two years ago, is now habitual. It is your answer Every time on the thing you lied about two years ago. You got to keep it going. And you think, well, you know, it hurt her feelings or it hurt his feelings. Try having them find it out on their own. See how they feel about it. Think that's going to be better or worse for you. So then Delilah said to Samson, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you can be bound. And he said to her, oh, he doubles down, doesn't he? Yep. If they bind me with new ropes... And it goes on. So Delilah takes new ropes. Surprise, surprise. And he binds him again. 
And the men, of course, are waiting to get him. And, of course, he snaps the ropes again. This, they're, in, they're in a pattern now. You see this? And it's, as that Dr. Phil would say, it works for him some level. She, she's trying to get the money. She ties him up. He breaks it. He lies about it. She lies about it or deceives him. So let me ask you this. When do you lie? Don't tell me you don't lie. That's a lie. We all lie. We do. We don't like it. We're not proud of it, but we all lie. And here's, here's the brutal truth about this. We lie when me becomes more important than we. You lie when you want what you want over the relationship. That's true in every relationship. You lie to your employer when you're looking for another job. And you don't want them to know it. So you lie. Because you're looking out for yourself rather than the best for the organization. Isn't that true? And people say, well, that's just smart business. Maybe that's just what you have to do. Well, you think about it. You think about the times you lie to your spouse. It's because you want to go ahead and make that purchase without their knowledge because you know they're not going to like it. You don't want to argue about it. You've deserved it. It's your money, however you look at it. But when you start saying it's my money or it's my this or my decision, then you're putting me before what? We. Just put yourself in front of the relationship. And you can only do that so long before the other person does the same. And that's over. That's how it works. So marriage demands transparency. Now you may say, well, how in the world do you do that? Chantel and I do not have a perfect marriage, but I love it. It's a good marriage. It also has something to do with our kids are no longer in the home. Um, but um, we have a good marriage. But here's the thing we found. We are much better with one another when we get an email or a text with every purchase the other makes. We just do. And she knows that when I'm getting gas at 7-Eleven and it goes ping, she, she texts me and says, give me a Diet Coke. Because <laughs> she likes a 7-Eleven Diet Coke. It works for us. And when the Costco bill is about to come in, God help us all. <laughs> I get a ping on my phone. That says, within the next number of days, you're going to have to pay this amount of money. And I go, wow. We also have committed not to go to Costco alone. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good rule. We always go together. So we know what's in the basket. So, Does it make sense? It just helps you move, move through it. Number four. The relationship challenge of the long haul. Chantel and I have been married 28 years. 28 and a half years. It'll be 29 this August. That's the best thing I've ever done in my life. That and saying yes to Jesus. But it, it can be challenging over time. Because here's the thing. People change, don't we? I'm not the same person I was at 23. She's not the same person she was when she was 22. So we, we've changed. Um, those, those men of you over 40 like me, we do not have the same level of testosterone we had at 20. I fall asleep in my chair when I come home from work sometimes. I mean, I'm just, you know. Like, let's go dancing. You know, I know. I'm done. So Delilah says to Samson, until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you can be bound. He says to her, well, if you weave the seven locks of my head with web and make it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. Now, if you're a biblical scholar, you know that there's another judge that comes before him named Deborah that kills a guy with a tent peg through his temple. Everybody knew that story. You don't know that story. You're like, oh, yeah, no, it's a terrible story. But, but they knew it. And so when they get to this third time, they're like, ooh, Samson's going to get it. 
because they can see where this is headed. And so while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and they wove them into the web and made them a tight pen. And all the little uh, Jewish kids around the campfire are like, is he going to get it? He doesn't get it. Um, He wakes up from the sleep. He pulls out the pen and the loom and the web. And she says to him, how can you say I love you when your heart's not with me? And if I was Samson, I'd be like, well, quit tying me up. We'll see how this works. But anyway, she says, you've mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day, I think that's unique to them, I'll say, and pestered him. He was, read it with me, tired to death. And friends, if you're in a relationship long enough, there will be a moment when you're tired to death. You both had really bad days at work. Uh, The kids are not on page. It's been indoor recess for a month. Haven't you ever been tired to death? Be really careful with one another in that season. And it's, it's going to lead into the next thing, and that is because there's only one Jesus, and you're not him, and neither is your spouse. Right? There are times where we all get tired to death, and woe to us who when it happens on the same day. So as our relationships change, our strategies need to change. Sometimes somebody will say to me, hey, you know, Pastor Mark, I talked to her about this, or I talked to him about this. I'm like, well, how's it working? Well, nothing's changing. Okay, well, what else have you done? Well, nothing. Well, have you prayed for them? Well, no. Do you pray together? No. Do you pray out loud together? No. Are you, are you in a small group or Bible study where you could learn from other people who have been married longer than you? Well, no. Um, have you been to a counselor? No. Uh, but well, we can't do anything about it. Well, well, yeah, I just gave you five things you might try that you haven't tried. And they say, well, we tried that, you know, 10 years ago. People change. You, you may need to go... Go back and talk to somebody else again. You do need that extended group. And and here's the thing. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us, we love our spouse and we love about 80% of them. Isn't that true? Oh, our our relationships also need to change. So our strategies, we've got to change. And so here's the thing. We we love about 80% of our spouse. So we need to celebrate that. We really do. And if you'll celebrate, if you'll write love letters to your spouse or the person that, that you want to be a better relationship with, tell them how you appreciate them. I appreciate this about you. I appreciate that about you. I appreciate this and that. And, and the thing is, everybody's got 20%. Don't, don't tell them they're 20%. They know it. They know it. You don't, have to, you don't have to tell them. They know. And here's the thing. Whoever else you're looking at, they've got at least 20%. Right? You got to own that. Nobody's 100% but Jesus. So anybody that you're looking at that's not your significant other, they've got at least a 20. So here's the thing. You got to feed the 80 and say it with me, starve the 20. Shut it. Right? Because here's the thing. I've had people actually tell me this. They're like, oh, you know, when we were, what, what do you love about your spouse? Oh, he's so funny. He's, he's so quick-witted. Oh, I just love that about him. You know, it makes me laugh. And then, you know, I know them 10 years later. I'm like, why are y'all getting divorced? He can never be serious. Like, well, which is it? Like, you knew that. So focus on the 80, starve the 20. And, and that, that ends that story. But there, there are two other things I want to share with you real quickly. These are bonus, just, just for good luck and, and good marriages, good relations. And that is, and Brandon told us about this, the challenge of kids. You know, when you have kids, particularly the first three to five years, uh, when they're nursing, when they're not potty trained, your relationship bliss goes in the toilet. It's just hard. I mean, anybody that's not honest about it, it's just hard. 
And then you get a break when you get to pre-K. It gets a little better when they get half day than full day. And, and then you, like, so you might actually have like two hours to get something done by the time they're in first or second grade. And you start to, I, re- I remember when our youngest uh, went to school and we went to breakfast. And I was really excited about it. She was crying. And, um, and, I, and I, I, like by that afternoon, I was like, oh, I recognize you. Like I know you. Like I dated you. But, but like that, that whole period of like seven years from the time our oldest was born till our youngest went to school, I was like, man, this is hard. This is hard. I just want to say that to you. It's better now, um, a lot better now. But here's the thing that really surprised me. Uh, we had a gentleman in the church, um, and, and he was bankrupt and was about to go to jail. And, I, and he was a great man, loving man, hardworking man. But the reason all that happened was he could not hold a boundary with his grown kids. He signed some loans for their uh, car payments, and they didn't make the car payments. And he was going down because he could not set a boundary with his grown children. This thing about kids, it's not when they're little. It's not just when they're home. It's any time. I have another lady in our church about to lose everything she has because she couldn't set a boundary with her 55-year-old son. Does it make sense to you? You cannot have backroom deals with your kids that your spouse doesn't know about. It will blow up your marriage. It will blow up your life. You've got to set some boundaries with your adult kids. Really important. And here's the other thing. You've got to challenge your kids. But you also have this weird notion, uh, this metaphor of, of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. And that's beautiful. And God loves marriage. But if we're not careful... We will think, and this is absolutely true statistically. It's also in that uh, article that I mentioned earlier. Used to, people got married because they needed help on the farm, right? You got married because she was strong. She could carry a lot of stuff, uh, or he was. And you had as many kids as you could so you can get the crops in. That was your litmus test, the good old days. So today, you know why people get married? Stupid Jerry Maguire. You complete me. That's a bunch of hooey. No, nobody completes you but Jesus. And so here's the thing. Your spouse is not Jesus. They don't complete you. They can't save you. They're a partner. They're a helper. And so here's the thing. We ask way too much of our spouses. We ask way too much of people who we want to have a significant relationship with. Now, just fill in your own blank. What do you ask your spouse to do? You want them to be your lawn boy. Your garden girl, your therapist, your financial accountant. Any, anybody here do your taxes equally? No, somebody gets it in the pants every year. And our family at Chantel, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Right? I mean, taxes are a beating. You think of all the things you kind of expect from your spouse maid, you know, therapist, I mean, you name it. It's a way too long list. Way, way, way too long. Am I making sense? There's nobody on this planet who's going to do everything you need. Particularly if you've blown up your extended family, friends, and network. It's an unreal expectation. So here's your action steps. I want you to ask or expect one less responsibility from your spouse. Just say to them, look, honey, I looked at, you I mean, you do like 8, 9, 10, 16 things for our family. What's one of these that we could contract out? 
Now, I know I'm talking to a particular demographic here. Most of the people in our church make $100,000 a year or more per household. Most of the people, I'll, I'll ask people who are older and I'll say, what saved your marriage? You know what they tell me? We had somebody mow the lawn. We fought about it for 20 years and we finally just sucked it up, ate out less and had somebody mow the lawn because we all hate it. Great. Now, how about your marriage? We got a housekeeper once every other week. Saved our marriage. Nobody wanted to, to do the, the deep clean and so we finally just, we didn't want to pay the money, but, you know, the thing was, we, we took it out of our kids' college fund. And so we're happy now. Or whatever it is. Does it make sense? Get the help you need. Get a therapist. Get a counselor. Get a lawn person. Get whatever you need to get, get it. But don't expect it from your spouse. They can't do it all. Can you? Those of you married, can you do it all? No, of course not. And so you have to engage one more piece of your extended network, whatever that is. Ask grandma to move in. Maybe. Depends on your grandma. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you, you, we need these people in our lives. And finally, uh, this is from one of my mentors. He says it like this. It sounds weird the first time you say it, but it's absolutely true. Lower your expectation and raise your commitment. You'll be a lot happier. Really, read this with me. Lower your expectation and raise your commitment. And pray like everything depends on Jesus. Because it does. To bring it all in. Amen? Amen. Next week... We'll be a little more positive. Be the best person for your person. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you do want us to be in relationship with you and with others. And those relationships are important to you. And marriage is a blessing. But we're not supposed to do it on our own. And we can't expect people to do things that only you can do and forgive us when we try that. You alone are Lord. You alone are our are, are Savior. And so we pray that you would let us let others off the hook that we would let them do what only they can do, and we'll trust you to do what only you can do. And that is to be our Lord and Savior once again this morning. And we do pray for those we love, those that we are in deep relationships with, that you'd bless them, you'd help them and not hurt them, and that you'd give us love for them. You'd give us the ability to focus on all the beautiful things you've placed in them, and that you would shield our eyes from the hurts and the, and the hard parts. Um, that would tear at our relationships. You turn our eyes again to you, Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.